The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Spectator Out Loud. I'm Lyndon Cancallan, part of the Spectator's broadcast team, and each week we choose our favourite pieces from the magazine and ask our writers to read them aloud. Coming up on the podcast this week, the Spectator's deputy editor, Freddie Gray, on why Ron DeSantis is no longer the future in the race for the presidency. Mary Wakefield recounts the train journey from hell as she and her young son get stuck en route from Durham to London We hear from Gareth Roberts about the screenwriters and actors striking over AI potentially taking their jobs. And Rachel Johnson shares her diary, which is full of SAS adventures and mishaps in New Zealand. But first up, it's Freddie Gray. It's widely acknowledged that, as governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis has been a success. As a presidential candidate, however, he has been a disaster, at least so far. Last weekend... Amid reports that his bid for the White House was floundering, DeSantis sacked a dozen of his staff and scaled back his travel plans. He may have raised some £20 between April and June, but some of the biggest Republican donors, who flocked towards him at the end of last year, are starting to turn away. His campaign is now concerned about funds running out. DeSantis disputes the doom and gloom characterisations of his candidacy. When a politician starts complaining about the media's predetermined narratives, however, The real message is clear. He knows he's losing. The polls tell the story. In March, DeSantis was only 10 percentage points behind the inevitable frontrunner for the Republican nomination, Donald J. Trump. Today, the gap is more than 30 points. Trump is on 52%, at least. DeSantis is dipping below 20. Trump is relishing his adversary's slide, naturally. De Sanctimonious is a terrible candidate, he declared last weekend in that glee dressed as regret tone he so often deploys when discussing his failing rivals. I think he's out. Where did it all go wrong for Ron? After the midterms in November, DeSantis was widely tipped to be the man to stop Trump winning the nomination again. He had won re-election in Florida, historically a closely contested swing state, by a staggering 20 points. He was Trump-like in his politics, but more professional, less toxic, not crazy. Trump is 77, so the relative youth of 44-year-old DeSantis seemed another point in his favour, especially as America grapples with the fact that Joe Biden, its 80-year-old president, is not in full control of his faculties. DeSantis is Trump, but you get two terms, said one Republican consultant. Inspired by such logic, various billionaires, the would-be kingmakers of the American right, began throwing huge sums of money in DeSantis's direction. Rupert Murdoch liked him, which meant Fox News, the nation's most powerful media network, started boosting his credentials. Murdoch's New York Post called him The Future on its cover page, alongside a Kennedy-esque photograph of Ron, his photogenic wife Casey, and their neatly dressed little children. This was all something of a sugar high, as DeSantis admitted at the weekend. Welcome back to reality snapped the Trump campaign's official War Room account on Twitter. It's clear now that, as one Trump campaign insider puts it, There was a lot of wishful thinking that we were moving into a post-Trump era. But Trump has long had a solid 35% of Republican support 
and it was always going to be difficult for anyone to get past that. Still, until at least late May, DeSantis's backers could credibly argue that he had a reasonable chance. Yes, Republican voters clearly preferred Trump, but it was early days, and historically frontrunners for the party's nomination have tended to fade away as the primary season warms up. Look at the now almost forgotten campaigns of Scott Walker in 2016, Newt Gingrich in 2012, or Rudy Giuliani in 2008. DeSantis hadn't even announced he was running, yet he commanded between 20 and 30% support in many Republican polls. As soon as he did declare, it was said, the political momentum, the big mo, as George H.W. Bush called it, would push him on. One of the world's richest men, Elon Musk, appeared to have jumped on board too. He arranged for DeSantis to launch his candidacy alongside him in a great whiz-bang Twitter spaces stunt on 24th of May. Unfortunately, that sort of online campaign hype has an unpleasant habit of blowing up in a candidate's face. Inevitably, the Twitter spaces launch was a calamity. For the first 10 minutes, the sound kept cutting out. Even once the technicians got DeSantis's voice working, his audio feed was embarrassingly intermittent. DeSantis managed to deliver a barrel load of platitudes about how democratic society needs robust debates. Then he droned on about his achievements as governor. It wasn't just awful, it was hilariously dull. And that, it turns out, is DeSantis's biggest problem. Personality and charisma are important in politics, says a Trump insider. Ron DeSantis speaks as though he is at some think tank luncheon. The question comes down to, do you want boring Trump? And the answer is no. People always choose the candy bar over the spinach. DeSantis, an introvert, sounds like an automaton and becomes most robotic when trying to convey passion. Last weekend, during an interview with the former Fox News host Tucker Carlson in Iowa, he boldly predicted that he would triumph in a contest for the White House against California's Governor Gavin Newsom, the man many expect to replace the ailing Biden on the Democratic ticket next year. I'm very confident that the freedom in Florida is what more people would choose rather than the public defecation on the streets of San Francisco, he said. You can imagine his team chortling at the line in rehearsal, but the words came out awkwardly. He also said that under his leadership, Mexican criminals bringing fentanyl across the border are going to end up stone-cold dead. It sounded forced, even psychotic. His campaign is run by dorks for dorks, says the Trump insider, and it's easy to see his point. Murdoch, for one, has reportedly gone off him. According to reports, he has privately winced at DeSantis's anti-woke messaging. Fox News has duly started making more critical noises about DeSantis. The editorial board of Murdoch's Wall Street Journal has not rushed to his defence. Americans like to compare campaigns to businesses. The candidate is the product, and if the product is flawed, the campaign will fail. That's DeSantis's problem. People aren't buying him as president. He tries to evade the boring Trump label by outflanking Donald to the right. He has conspicuously courted liberal hostility by adopting a more conservative position on abortion, for instance, and by raising doubts about the efficacy of the COVID vaccine. In doing so, however, DeSantis finds himself speaking to a conservative movement, which, while significant and well-funded, lacks the kind of mass appeal that Trump inspires. DeSantis can prove the courage of his convictions by signing a bill banning fetal heartbeat abortions, but even in the more God-fearing parts of America, celebrity tends to trump religion, and consumerism trumps everything, so Trump trumps all. Trump is a world-famous brand. In Belleville, Texas, Trump Burger is a popular fast-food restaurant. There are successful Trump merchandise stores in many parts of America. In other words, Trump the product sells. Besides, 
If right-wing radicalism is what voters want, Trump's promise that I will be your retribution in 2024 is surely more enticing than DeSantis' hammy talk about Florida being the state where woke goes to die. None of this is to say that DeSantis can't win. If Trump goes to jail, and he could, Republican voters might reconsider their support. Equally, they might not. DeSantis, a master of detail, may end up thriving in the debates. He may end up doing better than the polls currently suggest in Iowa, the first state in the Republican nomination process, on January 15th. Iowans voted for Ted Cruz over Trump in the 2016 caucuses. He may end up doing better than polls currently suggest in Iowa, the first state in the Republican nomination process, on January 15th. Iowans voted for Ted Cruz over Trump in the 2016 caucuses. But 2024 is fast approaching. Trump's support is now more entrenched, and Ron's time is running out. Those fickle donors are turning their attentions to Tim Scott, the African-American senator for South Carolina. There's also renewed support around Vivek Ramaswamy, the energetic businessman-turned-candidate who speaks winningly about America's spiritual crisis. Meanwhile, Nikki Haley, Trump's former ambassador to the United Nations, and Mike Pence, Trump's vice president, are still sucking up votes that might otherwise go to DeSantis. It's precisely the scenario anti-Trump Republicans have long feared, 2024 as a rehash of 2016, when a plethora of candidates all tripped over each other, trying and failing to block the orange one. DeSantis has failed to clear the field, says one political advisor. Now he finds the field is catching him. If that happens, Ron may well find himself remembered as another Scott Walker, a promising governor whose career was cut short by a failed tilt at the White House. He was the future once. That was Freddie Gray. Next is Mary Wakefield. The first LNER train I booked on Sunday from Durham to London was cancelled due to action short of a strike. I hadn't heard the phrase before, but I instantly admired it. It's just so impressively confusing. With a strike, you know whose side you're on. You can look up the salary of a train driver, for instance, discover that it's £70,000 after only a few years of training, and become icily indifferent to their plight. But action short of a strike, what is it? Action short of a strike turns out to be an ingenious way of screwing your boss while still getting paid. It means members can incorporate strike action into their daily working life, says Tessa, the Transport Salaried Staff Association. Simply work the bare minimum and the inevitable result is confusion and delay, as the fat controller used to say, and as I found out on the second train I booked. About an hour after that train left Durham, it slowed and stopped in a field. There's been a failure on the electric line, said the loudspeaker. But don't worry, the driver will start up the diesel engine. A few minutes later, the train began to move again. See, I said to my seven-year-old, what do I always tell you? You're lucky. In the old days, we would have sweltered here for hours. No backup engine, no phones. I never miss an opportunity to tell my son how much worse it was in the old days. He finds it uplifting. Shortly after that, the train stopped dead, just as it was leaving Thursk station. The lights went off, the sockets died, the aircon failed, and the temperature began to rise. Other trains whisked past, so clearly the first fault had been fixed, but we stayed put. Word from the next coach was that switching to diesel had somehow screwed both engines. But because there was no further communication from LNER, no one knew for sure. In fact, at no time in what turned out to be a nine-hour detour 
did any LNER staff member offer passengers any information or any help? Action short of a strike. I'm warning you, it's going to be a fun summer. At Durham Station, a disabled lady and her mobility scooter had been lifted on board with great bustle and care. The outing was a gift from her daughter, she told us. A treat. After two hours on the train, with no information, the lady was scared. Would another train crash into us? How was she going to get off? Eventually, our driver appeared, walking through the coaches. She was a woman of 30-odd, smiling. Sorry, sorry, she said holding up her hands as if to say, my bad. Please, are we safe? asked the disabled lady. But the driver didn't stop. Action, short of a strike. Let me see what I can find out, I said to the lady. There's bound to be something online. But all the LNER Twitter feed showed was a cartoon of a to-do list with the word nothing on it and the words that Sunday feeling. As I watched, another passenger tweeted at LNER. This is appalling, he said. Our train is without power at Thursk station. We've been without it for two hours. People are fainting. Do something. After a moment, the LNER Twitter account tweeted again. Did you know it's World Emoji Day? Here's the Azuma emoji for your consideration. Which one would you cho choose? Is this what it was like in the old days? Asked my son. Not really, darling, no. For something to do, my son and I walked down the train into the back coaches, which were still at the station platform. Every passenger was puce and sweating. An angry man had found an LNER guard and was grilling her. Why can't you open the doors and let some air in? She looked as if she might cry. It's impossible, she told him. The automatic system won't allow it because some part of the train has left the station. Some doors would open on the track. What if someone fell? What if that pregnant woman collapses? What if someone dies of heat exhaustion, said the man. Shortly afterwards, the doors opened just fine, and we all spilled out. For the next two hours on Platform 2 of Thursk Station, there was a mood of old-fashioned solidarity among all 500 or so of the passengers of the doomed Azuma. Children played tag on the platform edge, while the adults marvelled at the lack of assistance. Staff paced the platform briskly back and forth, trailing customers, trying to pick up enough speed to make questions impossible while not actually breaking into a run. I've seen horses do the same thing to stay ahead of flies. Pinned to the lapel of one guard's waistcoat was a badge. Be kind, I'm someone's daughter. At the far end of the platform, the driver had stopped for long enough to collect a circle of passengers around her. You have three options as I see it, she said, and none of them are good. You can hope that this train starts up again, but I can tell you it won't. You can go over that bridge, catch the next train back north, or you can get a taxi to York. The last option sounded best, but it was out. No Thursk taxi was prepared to take any passenger to York Station for love nor money. Someone offered 200 quid for the 30-minute trip, but nothing doing. In 2023, the usual rules of supply and demand have been suspended. But what does LNER advise us to do? As the sun began to sink, the voice of an older woman cut through the chat. It was the sort of voice that wears Kirby grips and brooks no nonsense from spaniels. I understand it's not your fault, but you are nonetheless a representative of LNER. What's the plan? The crowd nodded gratefully in agreement and turned back to the driver. It was like watching the old world pitted against the new. There is no plan, said the lady driver with that same odd smile. 
You're on your own. There's no help coming, no bus or anything. You can ask LNER for compensation, but I'd be surprised if you got anything. Action short of a strike. The strangest thing was how pleased she looked. That was Mary Wakefield. Next is Gareth Roberts. We are edging into the third month of the strike by the Writers Guild of America, called because of shriveling residual royalty payments from streaming movies and TV, as well as concern about AI such as ChatGPT being used to generate story ideas and indeed to write scripts. Hollywood screenwriters have now been joined by the 150,000 members of the Screen Actors Guild, which was demonstrated very visibly by the cast of Oppenheimer walking out of its UK premiere last week. We are all going to be in jeopardy of being replaced by machines, said Union President Fran Drescher. Susan Sarandon has said of AI, I would hope that in the future, people understand the difference between real people making real choices and something that's basically animation. But here's an uncomfortable fact. When it comes to scripts, I'm not sure using AI instead of flesh and blood writers would make a whole lot of difference. I've read tons of unsolicited or spec scripts in my time, written by people trying to break into the screenwriting industry, either as favours to friends of friends or in a professional capacity. When I was a script editor on Emmerdale, I once read 50 tryout scripts from people with at least one produced TV credit in a weekend. Luckily, I had built up a strong resistance. 50 episodes of actual Emmerdale in 48 hours would kill a beginner, let alone 50 amateur episodes, every one of them based on the same storyline. This is quite a soul-destroying activity, as you can imagine. It makes one feel alternately cruel, sad and bored. But something weird started happening about 10 years ago. I noticed that the spec scripts I was reading were getting much more acceptably presented, easier to read, with all the correct technical terms and layout. Superficially better, and yet strangely lifeless. They have the same flip, bantery dialogue. I've written plenty of that myself, but making it good is hard. The same empowered female lead characters with photostack quirky personalities and bags of sassy chat. Eventually, I figured out what had changed. There had germinated in that grim word of our times a community of online budding screenwriters who were all swapping the same tips, reading the same guides, watching the same how-to videos on YouTube. And the uncanniest thing of all, a lot of this stuff was perfectly acceptable and makeable. I've sent scriptwriting prompts to ChatGPT during that fleeting spring we all had when asking ChatGPT to write things was quite funny and diverting, and it spat back a remarkably similar brand of anodyne trash. I've just asked it to serve me up a pitch for a movie set in contemporary New York. Et voila! Urban Resurgence follows the captivating journey of Maya Rodriguez, a fiercely independent and ambitious woman navigating the vibrant landscape of New York City. Maya, a talented architect in a male-dominated industry, faces countless obstacles and biases, but is determined to prove her worth and secure a landmark project that could define her career. Then I asked it for a scene. Int, skyscraper office, New York City, day. The sleek and modern office of a renowned architectural firm. Maya Rodriguez, 30s, competent, determined, stands before a panel of stern-faced, mostly male executives. Maya's passion for her craft is evident in her eyes, but she also bears the weight of past dismissals. Executive, raising an eyebrow. 
Maya, this project is high stakes. We can't afford any missteps. Maya's gaze intensifies as she steps closer to the executives, her voice unwavering. Maya, challenging. Missteps? I face countless challenges in this industry simply because I'm a woman. I've had to prove myself at every turn, and yet here I stand, ready to push the boundaries of what this firm can achieve. If you're looking for experience, let me remind you that it's not always about how long you've been in the game, but about the fresh perspective and innovation that someone like me can bring. It's correct, yes, but it's lifeless and predictable. Not even funny bad, just bad bad. Like many of the spec scripts I read in the past decade, and indeed much of the actually produced studio output, it simply takes as read that one of the central purposes of cinema and TV is to self-replicate the moribund ideology of the latter-day Western campus. For my money, the BBC's greatest recent drama successes, I May Destroy You and The Responder, worked partly because they, consciously or not, repudiated that orthodoxy and took place somewhere much more like the real world. All TV is necessarily collegiate, produced by committee to some extent, but these shows shone because there was an air of very human despotism about their writing. We could say the same for The White Lotus and Succession on the streaming platforms. That is the stuff we need more of. The GPT-ish writing of And Just Like That, Emily in Paris, The Rings of Power, or the endless British prestige dramas in which life before Tony Blair is rendered as a fascist hellhole slash cultural wasteland, not so much. The transformation of more lightweight content, action, superheroes and sci-fi by this mindset is a cultural tragedy, a vital vent for escaping steam now bunged up. Streaming is another area of modern life where the true economic value of a product or service has been distorted by a tech innovation. Now the bills are coming in and investors are wondering where exactly is their return. AI makes financial sense to the movie and TV industry in cutting their overheads. We writers only have ourselves to blame because it will often be very hard to tell who is the robot. That was Gareth Roberts. And finally, here's Rachel Johnson. When someone asks, how are you? You have to assume your interlocutor is only being polite. Anyone who returns a ball-by-ball commentary about their aches and pains, work-life balance and reduced chances of summer fun thanks to the heat storm should immediately be sent to Coventry for the rest of time. That said, I'm just back from wintry New Zealand where I've been in a Channel 4 series called Celebrity SAS, Who Dares Wins? Despite my pledge that I'd never do any more shows with the word celebrity in the title, this one brought out the Bond girl Monke in me and I couldn't resist. I can't say any more about it as it's not out till early next year. The Matt Hancock one is about to hit our screens. But if asked, I say, fine, apart from fractured rib and pulled glute. Then, of course, I have to explain my injuries were sustained during a forward abseil race down the 330-foot high Clyde Down. I find this shuts people up. Nobody likes a show-off. It was my first time in New Zealand. It's a bit like flying for two entire days via Dubai and Sydney, only to end up in the Highlands, where baff biofascism is all around as you might guess, given Ms. Ardern's looping zero-Covid response. A friend who went through the airport just before me was fined hundreds of dollars for having a tangerine in her hand luggage. If it had been two pieces of citrus fruit, she was told, it could have been thousands. 
If you have soil on your hiking boots, you have to declare them and surrender them for decontamination. As I came through Queenstown Airport, I had to exit through a biosecurity lane where a border guard with a spaniel was checking everyone. As I walked past, the dog sat down by my backpack, which was the tell the canine could spell contraband. Somehow I got away with it. Imagine the shame of having to say, I never made it in, actually. I was put in prison for smuggling in five Yorkshire tea bags in a sock instead of bragging about my broken rib. I left New Zealand impressed if only we cared 1% as much about the natural world and the environment as the Kiwis do. At lunch at Wilton's this week with Dylan Jones, the new editor of The Standard asked me to come up with a title for his forthcoming memoir, which I did. I made the exact same suggestion as his agent, cover story, which shows what an unoriginal mind I have. Then he mentioned he also had a book coming out about the Velvet Underground. Hold on, Dylan, I complained. I've only just been to a launch of your last book about the 1990s at the Grant Show. His industry is nothing short of outrageous. Have you written another book since lunch? I asked him around tea time. If publishing addiction exists as a notifiable disorder, Dylan may have it. As a midlifer, I want to jocko to win a fifth successive men's title on Centre Court on Sunday. The marathon match concluded minutes before I was due on air at LBC at 7pm, which was a relief as I was jet-lagged and didn't want to spout about child benefit and public sector pay without any contribution from our valued callers. The crowd was with Carlos in his mission to dislodge the court blocker, but the Serb still has his superfans, chief among whom is the novelist Daisy War. I can't count the ways she loves him. A clue is that she, too, found the world's collective response to that virus giddy-making in its stupidity. But, suffice to say, she has dedicated her delicious, waspish new comedy, Old School Ties, to our unvaxxed hero. Re Rishi Sunak, Winchester, then PPE at Oxford, and his new crackdown on rip-off low-value degrees. If any of my many nephews and nieces ask my advice, I tell them, if they live in London, not to go to university in the capital, and then I say that if they're going to spend three or four years reading and writing about something, it has to be a subject they're keen on. I have prior here. One of my sons is sports, especially football mad, and during A-levels discovered a degree called sports management at Manchester. This was Savile Row hand-tailored for him and would have provided a perfect professional pipeline into a multi-billion pound industry and global obsession. We encouraged him to apply, but the boy was worried that people would think it was a Mickey Mouse course and chose law instead. In the end, Manchester kicked him out because, try as he might, he couldn't pass the property law module. One set textbook alone cost £100 and was about a 1,000 pages long. He left, went into the world of sport and has never looked back. Let that be a lesson to you all. Well, that was Rachel Johnson. And that's everything for this week. If these articles have left you wanting more, why not pick up a copy of the magazine? I'm Lyndon Kemcaran. Thanks for listening, and please do join us again next week. <laughs>